Our New Testament reading is from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our gospel reading is from Matthew 21, verses 23 through 32. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, O Lord. When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Jesus said to them, I will also ask you one question. If you tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. Did the baptism of John come from heaven, or was it of human origin? And they argued with one another. If we say, from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say, of human origin, we are afraid of the crowd, for all regard John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. What do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. He answered, I will not. But later he changed his mind and went. The father went to the second and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness And you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even after you saw it, you did not change your minds and believe him. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for a beautiful Sunday morning. Uh, Thank you that we are together in this space 
that we are seeing one another face to face, that, um, that our, our congregational voice is loud this morning, louder than it's been in a long time. So we thank you for the ways in which you have sustained us over this long pandemic, for the ways that you are meeting us even this morning. And we pray that as we sit with your scriptures, that you would draw near to us. Pray that you would help us to open ourselves, our minds, our lives, our allegiances, our hopes and our dreams, our fears, the things that make us anxious, the things that we can't stop thinking about. Would you help us to bring all of these things to you and to sit in this space open by your spirit to behold your glory and to be changed in your presence. So bless our time, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So this summer, as we are you know, beginning to gather again in ways that are feeling more and more normal, um, and we're focusing on coming together as a community, um, which in some ways is like coming back together, right? And reconnecting with people we used to be in regular communion with uh, and seeing one another again. Uh, but then in other ways is coming together for the first time as this newly merged church, Resurrection Philadelphia. We're doing all these things um, this summer. And if you're new to the city, uh, or if you're just new to this community in general, we're really glad you're here. Welcome. Um, we have, we're having an open house later today, uh, right after the service, and I hope you'll stay and get some coffee and uh, get a, you know, connect with one another, make some friends, and get a tour of this beautiful historic building. There's a lot more to it than the room that you can see right now, so uh, look forward to that time. But what we're doing this summer is we're focusing our energy and we're focusing our attention on coming together, on becoming one church. And to do that, we're prioritizing practices like having parties and gathering for prayer, socializing um, and talking with God. We're, we have prayer meetings on Tuesday and Wednesday nights. We have monthly gatherings outside, whether it's next week at the Woodland property that Dave just talked about, or whether it's in July and August and then on Labor Day uh, in various places in Fairmount Park. We're gathering together. We want to see one another, and we're learning uh, one another's stories. We're coming together as one community. So we're doing things together. We're also considering some things together as we come together as one church. And so we're, last Sunday, we began a new sermon series that we're calling The Ties That Bind Us, uh, where we're really focusing on beliefs and practices that are central to our life in the body of Christ, generally, and our life specifically in this communion, Resurrection Philadelphia. And so as we work together over this summer toward coming together, you know, what will be the centerpiece around which we organize our common life? What would be the glue that will hold us together? And if we recall St. Augustine's explanation that what makes a people a people is their agreement to share the things they love, this summer we're asking ourselves together and we're sitting with the question, what love will we agree to share as a community? And what does that agreement, what will that agreement look like in practice? And so last week we began with this central pillar of our faith, God the Trinity, doctrine of the Trinity, as we celebrated the feast day of Trinity Sunday and, and marveled at that great mysterious revelation that God is one God, yet three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, a mystery that is a centerpiece of our Christian confession and the confession of the church throughout the ages. Today, we turn our focus and our attention specifically toward Christ. 
the centerpiece of all centerpieces, we might say, right? The cornerstone upon whom God builds his church. The capstone in whom all things hold together. The alpha, the omega, the firstborn over all creation. The firstborn from the dead into the new creation. The pioneer and perfecter of our faith. God in person in our world. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of God, the Christ. And that word Christ is just the Greek version of the Hebrew word Messiah, which means anointed one. It's a term that referred to God's chosen king of Israel through whom the Lord would exercise his life-giving reign over Israel and then through Israel to the world. And the confession of the Christian church throughout the ages really has been that Jesus, this particular Jewish man who lived in Palestine like 2,000 years ago, is not only the long-awaited Messiah of Israel whom God promised and then sent, the one who would establish God's everlasting kingdom on earth, but that this Messiah Jesus is also actually God himself, that God, uh, the author of history, if you will, chose to write himself into the story as a character in order to rescue the plot line of this human story that had taken a tragic turn. And that rescue, as we see in Jesus, would involve God's own stepping onto the plane of history and onto the soil of this earth as a human person, made like us in every way, to live a human life that would reveal the heart of God, to die a human death under the full weight of this human tragedy, and to rise again to new life turning the tide of history away from its trajectory toward death and its tragic ending and toward the future that God had always intended for the world. Everlasting life, human flourishing, justice, peace, wholeness that lasts forever. Writer Joan Didion famously wrote, we tell ourselves stories in order to live. That as you and I seek to do life in the world, as we make sense of things, as we make decisions, as we dream dreams, as we fear threats, that we do so inside of some story, right? A story we tell ourselves. Stories that we receive and repeat by which we understand our being, our belonging in this place. We live out of scripts that fit the stories that we tell ourselves. Um, an example I remember of this when my daughter was like two um, and Frozen was a movie that was on regular repeat in our house. I remember I was taking a nap on the couch one day uh, and my daughter, I, I wake up and there's this pudgy face right in my nose and my daughter's pressing her face against mine going, do you want to build a snowman? <laughs> Which if you've seen the movie Frozen, if you know it well, there's a scene, right, where the two sisters are, are, are there in their room and one of them's asleep and the other one is there asking, you know, waking her up, do you want to build a snowman? My daughter's living toward me in my Sunday afternoon nap out of a script given to her by Disney. Uh, we do this too, though, all through our lives. As we make sense of what is life about and like, who am I? What am I? How do I make decisions? What do I value and prioritize? We live by all kinds of stories, whether it's the American dream or whether it's some quest for fulfillment in some other way. We tell ourselves stories in order to live. And the church is the community that has committed to organize its life around the story of Christ. 
We're the, we're the community that is committed to receive this story and to understand our being in the world through it and through him. And that this is the story we receive and repeat. And this is the story that we let bear upon our own lives, that we let shape our imaginations, that we let give us the script out of which we will speak and make decisions about life. And that story of Christ, one of the beautiful, rich mysteries of how this works is that the story is both the story of all history and it's a very particular story of one man in one place at one time. And the way that that story gets received and repeated in the life of the church in every generation, that story functions in our community as one that both affirms and contradicts aspects of every culture, every generation, every other story that begins in any other place other than Jesus himself. For the past several hundred years in the West, most of the stories that we've been telling ourselves in order to live are stories that re, uh, reinforce an idea that we hold on to that we are actually uh, the authors and the main characters of our own respective life stories. That there's something autonomous or unfettered about our being in the world that, that we are our own to create and our own to determine. Um, which is not a very creaturely way of living in the world, right? Now, there are aspects of that that are beautiful, where it's the, the agency of a person that's made to have agency. There are also aspects of that where we actually try to live not as creatures, but as creators of our own little kingdoms. And the story of Jesus, what's so beautiful is it is the story of the creator who, out of love, took on the limited existence of a creature like us and lived faithfully in the world in obedience and love and freedom all at the same time. And obedience is one of those words that doesn't usually make us think of freedom. Those feel like competing ideas to us, I think, generally. If you're, if you're wired the way I'm wired, those words feel like they're on opposite ends of some sort of spectrum. But you know, there's a, I, I have an experience back in college, a, a story I've told some of you that I'll, I'll share again. But, uh, it was one of my spring break, I guess this is my third year of college, and I was going to take a, a canoe trip for spring break. And my, my roommate Brian and I were, were planning to canoe the Ogeechee River in Georgia, which would take about a week to do. And if we did the whole thing from where, from the, where the river begins, we would have ended up in, in Savannah, Georgia, where the river meets the Atlantic Ocean. That was our plan. That was our whole big plan. It was, it was going to be great. And so we set out to, to canoe the river. You know, the alligators and the water moccasins and all the things. It was awesome. We get like a day into this journey and the skies just open up and it is just like torrential downpour. I mean, rain, rain, like the kind of rain that we had here this past week, right? And what began to happen, not only did our canoe begin to fill up over and over where we had to drag the boat out and dump it and our gear was soaked and we were sleeping in wet stuff and it was just gross, you know, but the river filled up and spilled out over the banks to where we were basically canoeing in this wide open 360 degree water area, which was awesome for a minute, right? Because it's like, we could go everywhere. We could canoe over land because we could go all of the places that you normally couldn't go. But we realized that there was a problem embedded in this situation. And that was that the one thing we actually wanted to do 
which was canoe the river to the ocean, we couldn't do because we couldn't find the river. <laughs> we were lost. We were lost amid every option that became available to us. And the one thing we set out to do, the one destination we actually wanted, we couldn't get to because we were inundated by every choice under the sun. There's something about that that has stayed with me as a metaphor for life with Christ and the way that obedience and freedom are not antonyms, but that actually learning to live our life through the story of Jesus is essentially learning to live within the riverbed that the creator has hewn for us to travel, that God has actually made us good <laughs> and made the world good and actually calls us into a life that is good and beautiful and rich and joyful, where life flourishes and thrives. And the way into that is not by having every single option under the sun available to us in equal measure, as though we are the author and main character of our own story. But the way into that is to be swept up into the life of the human being who lived the beautiful life. To let the story that shaped his life begin to shape ours. To let the script that he lived by become our script that we receive, that we rehearse, and that we share with others. The way we make decisions, the way we allow our imaginations to be stoked, the way we hope and dream for the future. Christ is that river of living water that carries us to the very ocean of God's presence and goodness and life in his new creation for which we are made. The creator's creation that he invites us into that we only access by way of being his creatures who commune with Jesus Christ, the firstborn over all creation and the firstborn from the dead of this new creation. So as we consider Christ and what it means to organize our story around his, we have this beautiful text from Philippians chapter two that we just read. It's one of my all-time personal favorites, this Christ hymn that just sings of the majesty and the movement of Christ. And what's going on here is that the apostle is urging the church in Philippi to strive together toward unity, which is as he understands it, what it looks like when the community of Christ begins to organize its life around Christ, his story, his person, and his work. And what Paul presents in this is that the secret to unity is the kind of humility that we see displayed in the human life of Jesus. Leading up to this part of the letter, Paul has already said quite a bit about Christ as the source and center of the church's life. In chapter one, he addresses the letter, first of all, to all the saints in Christ who are at Philippi. In verse six, he speaks of this day of Christ, which is this future moment when God would bring to completion the good work which he had begun in them. In verse eight, he, he yearns for the Philippians, as he says, with all the affection of Christ Jesus. In verse 11, Paul prays that the Philippians' love would abound with knowledge and discernment so that they may approve what is excellent and so prove to be blameless at the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ. And then in verse 21, he offers these famous words, to live is Christ, to die is gain. For Paul, Christ is the source and center of life itself. 
And toward the end of chapter 1, he urges the Philippian church to live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ, which sets up this section that we get to here this morning, in the beginning of chapter 2, where Paul, in verses 1 and 2, begins by appealing to their experience of life in Christ. There are a few big ifs right there, right? If you're looking at verses 1 and 2 in your bulletin, the words are printed there for you. He says there there are a few big ifs, right? If being united to Christ, if you've experienced comfort from God's love, or if you've known participation in the Spirit, if there's affection and sympathy. These aren't ifs in the sense of like, maybe so, maybe not. Paul's not calling into doubt whether or not these things are part of the Philippians' experience. He's appealing to what he knows they've experienced, as the rationale and grounds for what he's about to instruct them to do in verses three and four. It's since these things are true of you, therefore do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. And this is what it looked like, it looks like, Paul says, when the church really begins to let the story of Jesus shape the way we live in the world toward God and toward one another. The real Jesus, when we reckon with who he is, right? The son of God, God in person in our world, the one raised from the dead. We have to recognize that there's not another place other than the center that Jesus can reasonably fit in our lives individually or in our life together, right? Like it just makes no sense that your prefab life, your pre-existing commitments and conditions and all the things and the things that you, you, you consider non-negotiables or, or non-transformables, that if you try to fit Jesus in at the edges of your life as like a feel-good sauce to just put on a little bit on top of something that's otherwise unchangeable, the only way to put Jesus there, displaced from the center relative to these other things, is to either like diminish or domesticate or dismiss Jesus as he claims to be for himself, as the scriptures testify to who he is, right? As the church has confessed that Jesus is. The only way we fit Jesus comfortably into some safe edge of our life where he just won't mess things up too much is to demote him from the Christ, the risen one. But the beautiful thing is when we receive Jesus and actually began to open our lives to him and and say, you know what, Jesus, I recognize you as Lord and Christ, as the friend of sinners, as the one who comes near. And we begin to organize our lives together around the center of Christ, recalibrating around him, letting his story shape all the other things. What we begin to find is that nothing's off limits for being transformed, even our selfishness even our self-centeredness. And what we see in verses three and four is just that. The Apostle Paul holding out a vision for the Philippian church to be radically other-centered instead of self-centered and to live together as a community in that way. And then in verse five, he says, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. And he goes from there to offer one of the most beautiful and stirring portraits of Jesus in all of scripture that Christ, who was in the form of God and equal to God, did not count equality as something to be grasped or exploited, but chose instead to empty himself, 
to humble himself, to become a servant, to take the form of a slave, Paul says, to become obedient to God, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is what theologians will refer to as the humiliation of Christ, followed soon by the exaltation of Christ, right? The downward and the upward movement of the Son of God who has come for us. And this is just the shocking reality that the picture of God that we get in Jesus is a God who puts himself beneath you. Have you ever willingly gone to the back of the line? I hate being at the back of the line. It's like the worst, right? But there's this picture of Jesus who has the status, all the privilege, all the power, all the rights, if you will, to promote himself and say, I'm actually above you. And the picture you get is, is one who uses all of that privilege and leverages it to say, you know what? I'm gonna put myself beneath you to prop you up. I'm gonna put you at the center of my vision for the kingdom. I'm gonna put you at the center of my love. I'm gonna elevate your life with my power, not exploit my status and my privilege to promote myself. It's a shocking picture of humility and it's a shocking picture for the Philippian church to, to grapple with because humility was not a highly esteemed virtue in that time and place. It really wasn't. Not in that day and certainly not in the Roman colony of Philippi with its well-ordered social scale. Displaying humility in Philippi, other, in other words, was essentially to take up a way of being human that did not follow the script of their cultural moment. It didn't play by the playbook of the Roman or the Philippian way. It played by the playbook of Christ, which looked radically different, not self-promoting, not status-obsessed, but self-humbling and elevating others. And the apostle is calling the church to practice a way of being human that's just better, that's different, but like good different. Not standoffish, weird different, not like self-withdrawing different, beautiful different. Like that's what I've been craving kind of different. Do you ever feel like you're longing for something more in the way just human beings treat one another and relate to one another? Do you feel like we're stuck socially, societally in this divided, outrage-filled moment where we just are entrenched against one another and we don't wanna be seen as the wrong kind of person and we also don't really wanna be friends with the wrong kind of person and it's just dividing lines everywhere and we're trying to figure it out, but it's just intolerable to be with other people and other people find you intolerable. That's a miserable version of humanity. I feel that, do you feel that? I feel that. What we get in Jesus is a profoundly more beautiful and profoundly more powerful and profoundly more life-giving way of being human and of seeking to be in relationship and community with one another. And the secret to it, Paul says, is humility. Radical, self-giving humility. And just as we might think that that would be giving it all up and sacrificing everything, right? Allowing ourselves to be maybe a doormat that gets trampled or steamrolled or whatever, what we begin to see is that the path of self-humbling is actually the path of the blessed life. 
that this one, the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one who walks this path, this is the path of the blessed life. When you think about what a blessed life looks like, what do you think of? You know, I have all my thoughts. You know, I, I think of like feet propped up on the beach or whatever. You probably do too. I don't know. Whatever you think, of, like we have these ideas of like comfort, ease, material blessing, abundance. Like I don't have to worry about stuff. I have what I want, all that stuff. And, and there are real aspects to that. Life is good and the world is good. These are good things we're made to enjoy. But what's so powerful here about the story of Jesus is that the path of the blessed one is the path of moving downward. Downward, down the ladder for the sake of others. It's leveraging the good things that we have to prefer one another. And as we think about what it means for us to be the church that lets the story of Christ be the one that shapes our life together, that provides our script for how we'll be, how we'll be human, the two things I think we need to reckon with are simply that in Jesus, we actually get a story that transforms our understanding of what God is like, and in Jesus, we get a story that transforms our understanding of what flourishing human life is like. What is God like? God is like Jesus. If there were one word that I could erase from our Christian vernacular, it might just be the word godly which is not a bad word in and of itself. It's a word that appears in scripture. It's a fine word, but I can't think of any use of that word that wouldn't be better described by the word Christ-like. Scriptures talk about Jesus as being the image of the invisible God, the exact imprint of God's nature. This full revelation, the clearest revelation of the character of God, what God is like. God is like Jesus. Any version of godliness that we think of that doesn't look like Jesus is not a true image of God. And any image of godliness we aspire to that doesn't look like Jesus is not godliness, which is why I would rather just forever substitute the word. Because I think, and I'm willing to be shown that I'm wrong, but I think Christ-like works as a better substitute for every single use of the word godly that's used in respect to human life or our lives. God is like Jesus, and that's profoundly good news. Bradley Jersak, in his book, A More Christ-Like God, does this beautiful job of teasing out just what it means for us that Christ is God's great revelation to us of what God is like. And he says that we discover in Christ a God who operates by a love that overcomes, not a force that overwhelms. And we discover a God who shows up in our world to embrace sinners like you and me and invite us into the life-restoring and life-transforming, life-fulfilling relationship with God through him, through his own relationship of love and union with the Father. That's the true image of God that we see in Christ. And Jersak contrasts that with four false images that he sees that I think are helpful. One false image he calls the doting grandpa image of God. That God is basically like syrupy nice, but kind of naive, right? Um, the one who spoils the grandkids with whatever they want while also sort of turning a blind eye to our misbehavior, no big deal, whatever. The God we expect to give us what we want without getting too involved in what we do. The second false image of God that he says is the deadbeat dad. The one who's perpetually distant or absent or silent. The one who's disconnected. 
God who's abandoned us or who is powerless or unwilling to help, the God who doesn't really listen or reply. Thirdly, he says the false image of God as the punitive judge, the harsh taskmaster and meticulous micromanager, the punisher, scary God, angry God, the one who accuses and condemns, the God whose ambassadors come preaching a message of you better or else. And then lastly, he says the false image of the Santa Claus blend, which is like a blend of all three of these, where like the doting grandpa, he exists to give us whatever we want and therefore can be really disappointing and disillusioning when he doesn't come through. Like the deadbeat dad lives somewhere really far away and only visits once a year or so. Like the punitive judge is making a list and checking it twice. Who knows if you've been bad or good and will deal with you accordingly. It's an anti-grace image of God. And it's the opposite message of Jesus who says, I am with you always. I will never leave you or forsake you. Jesus, who came into the world as the gospel of John says, not to condemn the world, but to bring that life and good news to a world so desperately in need of healing. Jesus says to his followers at that last supper, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so what is God really like? He's like Jesus, the restorer of lives. And the apostle Paul says to the church, let the same mind that was in him be in you, the mind of humility. St. Augustine was once asked to list the core principles of the Christian life, to which he answered, first, humility, second, humility, and third, humility. If the old story of Adam and Eve is a picture of human grasping and how it goes wrong, the story of Jesus is sort of like an Adam and Eve in reverse, a picture of a new way of being human in God's world that has the opposite effect, right? Not the self-exalting, uh, grasping kind of thing that ends up trampling others and spreading brokenness, but the self-humbling and the refusal to grasp that leads to serving others and using one's own agency to elevate others which just spreads mercy and justice and love and unity and peace. And this way of being human, the Christ way, is the blessed way. Because this one who emptied himself and became obedient, even to the point of death, God raised him up, exalted him and gave him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. His hope is our hope. His glory he shares with us who share in his sufferings. His path is the blessed path and the beautiful opportunity we have as this community is to let his story become ours, to let his mind be in us, to let his humility characterize the way we relate to one another inside and outside this church community so that the story we have to tell is a better story. It's the good news that we need, that our neighbors need, that the world craves and that we long for. And that at the very center of it all is the story of this God who is exactly like Jesus, who uses all of his power and all of his freedom and leverages it for you, not simply to like rule over you or take away your freedom, but to lift you up so that in him you would find the freedom for which you were made.
that ocean of goodness and love and being that is God and the world he's made for you and for me and for all his children to dwell in with him forever. Christ is the river of life that is connected to that ocean and leads to that destiny. May God give us grace to let his story and his life be ours. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.